Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking about the election today with Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more at ineteconomics.org. That's I-N-E-T economics, all one word, ineteconomics.org. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and on kpfk.org Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific. Streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. And podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Podomatic.com, most major podcast sites, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. And at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, TerrenceMcNally, all one word, .net. So in preparation for this conversation, I found myself just musing over the last couple of days. How do I feel about the election? What what do I think about the election? And I'm really not sure. I was fearing much worse, but I also know that I'm pretty deeply disappointed in what happened. Both things are true for me for at least a decade, perhaps as far back as the Iraq war, but certainly from 2016 on. I have felt that the Republican Party needs to be repudiated outvoted so consistently up and down the ballot that they return to being a useful party or they disappear and are replaced. And by useful, I mean a party that can compete in in, in a battle of ideas and policies that sort of has some positive purpose about it. For me, given what Republicans aim for and what they achieve in terms of the Trump administration, all those judges Supreme Court and otherwise, all those tax cuts, it's not good enough that they win or lose in close competition with the far less than perfect Democrats. Of course, this repudiation has not happened. It's pretty much business as usual, as if the two parties simply have different ideas of how to defend and support the welfare of the people. But that's not the case anymore at all. Hasn't been for years. So we end up with gerrymanders, voter suppression, election deniers, a packed Supreme Court out of step with the people of America, and ultimately minority rule, all fueled by successfully fanning the flames of grievance and rage for electoral success without offering any solutions for the critical challenges we face. I I, I confess I've been feeling a little sick to my stomach. And pardon the pun, because digesting what passes for good news in terms of how we govern ourselves and and who we aspire to be. Looking back, and I mean looking back over the last 5, 10, 20 years, I didn't envision having to fight so many of the same battles over and over again, playing defense on, on matters of justice, women's rights, our relationship with the rest of nature, and so on. The challenges we face are so enormous and consequential. Climate, pollution, public health, inequality, democracy, racism, tribalism, disruptive technology, nuclear weapons, and and I'm sure there's more, that we cannot afford to fail, and we can't afford to waste the time we currently continue to waste refighting old battles. 
I have conversations on this show, as anyone who listens knows, about the reforms that might steer politics and government in a healthy direction. But when you watch and see that good ideas and policies with life-changing benefits for people, continuation of the child tax credit, for an example, were unpassable because one party opposes every bit of such an effort and because money from giant industries, fossil fuels, pharmaceuticals, finance, just to name a few, are able to buy the two votes needed to defeat them. Rob, I assume you share a lot of my perspectives on the crises we face and our failures to respond effectively. My big question, bigger than turnout in one state or another or which issues resonated this fall, is how is this going to change? Beyond dogged determination and heartfelt commitment, what gives you hope that we're going to turn things around? How do we get to the point where we are seriously attempting to deal with the hand we've been dealt? Dealt, for the most part, of course, by our own actions. So, we're going to talk about the elections, what worked, what didn't, what we learned. We'll talk about the economy, too, what's really going on and what might actually help us get through our current situation with the least pain for families. But underlying everything else we talk about is that feeling in the pit of my stomach that we are on the wrong path and don't even know how to get back on track. Robert Johnson previously served as chief economist of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, was an executive producer of the Oscar-winning documentary Taxi to the Dark Side. Johnson was a management director at Soros Fund Management and is now executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and host of the podcast Economics and Beyond, as I said. Welcome, Rob Johnson, again to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I've uh, always been invigorated when we've talked around these election times in the past and about every other issue. Uh, my, I guess I'm kind of haunted. I'm listening to Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Yeah. He's got a new album called Only the Strongs Will Survive. And uh, I'm trying to figure out how we build the bridge over troubled waters to bring Paul <laughs> Simon to the table. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is haunting, and uh, you know we can go through in the in the nuance many different pieces. I find, and and I'll be want to be upfront with your uh, your listeners and your audience. My wife is the chief executive of Planned Parenthood of America. Oh, and right. So I'm I am uh, I don't want to talk about that issue without it being understood that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm cheering for the family regardless of what people have the right to have in uh, their own choice of whether abortion should be legal or not I'm thinking that people should be able to choose not have imposed upon them not only in the realm of abortion but in many many other dimensions of life and what I do think was an enormous setback for the Republicans to an avalanche that could have been worse, and we can go into that, was when the Dobbs decision was made. Libertarians, women who used to vote with however their husband did, and all kinds of people who didn't turn out got shocked and came to the table and as, as disappointing as the results feel like, and I share your, your concerns, I think it was much more gentle <laughs> for the opposition part, or excuse me, for the governing party. If you look at the history going back to the 20s, 
very often this midterm election is a real setback two years before the president's, uh, you know, two years into a term, two years before the next presidential election. Obviously, with the pandemic, as you mentioned, I'll use the Ukraine, nuclear concerns and everything else. There's a lot that's daunting. And when people are afraid, they're vulnerable. I grew up in Detroit. And as we talked last time, when Donald Trump came to town and said the system is rigged, those people, regardless of their level of education, MDs, MBAs, auto workers, all nodded yes. The system was rigged. Donald Trump suffered tremendously because those same people voted for Joe Biden because they viewed Trump as someone who had seduced and abandoned mm -hmm. the people he invigorated. And I do believe that his, what you might call, subset of the Republican Party experienced what I'll call much less than enthusiastic response uh, in this election that we're talking about here today. So to the first point that we both sort of have alluded to, which was this was uh, not just better than predicted, but uh, this was the strongest midterm performance for a president's party since Republicans gained seats in the 2002 elections under George W. Bush. So let me just put that in perspective. A, that's 20 years ago. B, that was following the uh, attack of 9-11-2001. And as we know, that brought the country together. So so the, the incumbent party, the war president got, um, got, got votes that time. But this is the best one for Democrats in a midterm election since the party gained Senate seats under John Kennedy in 62. Yeah. 62. That's 60 years. The best performance by the Democrats in, a, in an off year election. So it did. And and the point that you make, um, which uh, I must say, on the day that Dobbs uh, decision came out, most of the response, my response is, of course, horror, anger, all those things and so on. But there was this little voice in the back of my head that said they'll pay for this. And and I think you're right that that if that can be framed uh, not as a religious issue, which of course is to some extent how they frame it, whether they say those words or not, but as a freedom issue, as a rights issue, as a liberty issue, then you 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 bring together an awful lot of people that uh, that otherwise um, uh, probably agree with a lot of 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 what the Republicans stand for. Yeah, and and people. How would I put it? Um, just hypothetically, people can be against abortion in yes. terms of their own life, but see the precedent that was set by that decision cascading through all kinds of dimensions of their life that terrify mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. if the state is going to override. So uh, you, the way you just disaggregated things is exactly right. It's not just about that particular moral dilemma. It's about who makes the decisions in the resolution of moral dilemmas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in that respect, a largely Republican created Supreme Court, I think did detriment to the degree to which House or Senate would be populated by Republicans as a result of this election. Yeah, and I saw a breakdown. This is a, a, an article um, at Vox. Uh, the article was by Zach Beauchamp, but it was mainly an interview uh, 
uh, I believe. But but here he said uh, it was an interview with David Shore, who's a Democratic election data analyst. And what he points out, and this is this is surprising to me, um, the electorate was two percentage points more Republican in 2022 than it was in 2020. Okay, more Mm. Republicans voted. Non-white turnout was substantially lower than white turnout compared to 2020. So what happened? Mm. Where did the good news come from? It came from independents. And he makes the point that those independents came over because of Dobbs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Also, he, an awful uh, lot of young people, yes. an awful lot of young people turned out in proportions of the, I say, body politic that we haven't seen in a long time. That's right. I'm going to I'm going to give you I, I, I did some numbers research to throw in among our our, our reflections. But one is that it, it, following up on, on what Shore said here, he said that. Um, there's a common kind of interview survey thing where you go through 30 different issues and you say, what party do you trust more on these issues, right? Education, healthcare, immigration, people trust. Uh, and and the, the, the thing is that the right tends to do better on things like size and scope of government, immigration, crime, and so on. And before the Dobbs decision, abortion was a somewhat above average issue. But after the Dobbs decision, there was a sudden jump. Abortion went from being a somewhat good issue for Democrats to becoming the single best issue for Democrats. Mm -hmm. So there Mm -hmm. you go. And in terms of youth, exit polling shows voters age 18 to 24 voted 61 percent for Democrats. That's 18 to 24. 25 to 29 voted 65 percent for Democrats. Now, and, and what they also did was they came out. Um, the second highest youth turnout in midterm history uh, was was this election. And um, as Robert Reich points out, by 2028, millennials and Gen Zs will, he says, dominate U.S. elections. Mm-hmm. And this is, as he says, the Republican is worst nightmare. In, um, in a group of nine electorally competitive states for which exit poll data is available, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, New Hampshire, etc. The aggregate youth voter turnout was 31%. In Michigan, your home state, the early youth vote was up 200% from 2018. In Pennsylvania, it was up 300%. In Wisconsin, 360%. So young people, women, young women, um, I think think we both acknowledge were probably the deciding factor. And and in that ever-growing a percentage of the electorate that is independent or declined to state. It's a fascinating thing, you know, when you when you use the Dobbs decision, it's a vehicle about things that matter that aren't just finance, meaning money. Yep. Because where I have been very critical of the Democratic Party in recent years, going back to, I mean, uh, David Sirota and Alex Gibney did that podcast meltdown. The nature of the bailout as Joe Stiglitz famously said, paid the polluters. Yeah. And a lot of people believe, including I heard him at a dinner once, Steve Bannon, you got Occupy, you got a Tea Party, you got a Republican House, a Republican Senate, you got Donald Trump because the Democrats took care of the elites. They were afraid because the system in America is so dependent on money for political resilience, meaning survival of an elected official. One famous senator, who I won't name, 
after he retired, I had lunch with him and I said, why did you retire? And he said, because it's very painful to spend 70% of your time raising money from people who want to harm your constituents. Oh my God. We have these two currencies, one we call money and the other we call votes. But when votes turn out, persuasion, all these things depend on money, we get to a place where people are, which you might call vulnerable to authoritarian uprisings. And Donald Trump, I think, was a symptom of that. In more recent times, I'm saying post-Trump's election, I've been very concerned because I see people like uh, Evan Osnos from The New Yorker and others writing about how wealthy people are now afraid that the system's so broken that they're doing things. And, and I remember this book that somebody just shared me uh, a, a look at. It was at his house the other night by Douglas Rushkoff, a man I've never met. Oh, Survival I've... of the Richest. Mm-hmm. And it's about the plutocrats building bomb shelters, evacuation through private airstrips, etc. Because let's just say if money was big and money the wealthy were powerful you'd think the wealthy could sit down at a table and say we've got to change course here yes but things are so disoriented now that the people with those resources who care about their family members etc the only pathway they see is an escape hatch yeah and i find at some level for things like health, America's, I'm looking at OECD and World Health Organization data. America's health system is rated 38th in the world. The OECD, the Northern meaning advanced economies, spending per capita on health in the United States is twice the OECD average. You're spending twice as much for the worst performance. Well, people who want to worship market economics got to come up with an explanation for that because they always act like dynamism and being deregulated produces better for cheaper. And now you're paying twice as much for worse. And yeah. as the baby boom ages, you're talking about the, the yeah. change in voter turnout. As the baby boom ages, the burden on the productive economy of this inefficient healthcare system can swamp, whether it's rises in debt or the tax code or the things we can't do, like education and other things that what I'll call transformative assistance to a dynamic society. So we are really at a, a stagnant point Somebody said to me recently, the deterioration with China, the hawkishness vis-a-vis Putin, and I've got no excuse or no apologies for Putin. Right. He, he's a terrible guy in my view. But these things are now being directed because it's what they call the Bismarck model. When you can't solve your own problems, find a foreign enemy. When you got to the 2002 that you mentioned earlier and 9-11 attack, and we saw more people rally around the nation and desire for stability and you know moved or fortified the republicans who were in power at a little bit right now it feels like we're getting that bismarck rallying cry to ignore a lot of our domestic problems because we don't know how to solve them let's direct our energies together unified whether it's vis-a-vis china vis-a-vis russia or or but, but on the other side, and this is what I found fascinating looking at polls about the young people, is their awareness of climate change. I have to say, 
thank God for Greta Thunberg and people like that. Yeah. They aren't going to go with this. How do I say? It's all about me, not about we. It's we in the global north and global south. We within the country have to work together or all of us are going to be in jeopardy. And, and, and life on Earth could be in jeopardy. Nuclear war, as Daniel Ellsberg and others yep. have shown, the upper atmosphere can be destroyed and destroy life on Earth. Propelling neglect for another 50 years with regard to climate change, with enormous growth in the population in Africa, which is an equatorial region, can create, without substantial development assistance and substantial energy system transformation, all of these things have to be done collaboratively as we, not as protecting me. And when and the hardest part, I'm, I'm going on here, but Terrence, the hardest part for me to comprehend is when things aren't working and you get afraid out of, how do I say, lack of a vision of where to go, you protect me. You fortify your own bunker, if you will, metaphorically, exactly at the time when we all got to come out of the bunker and work together with regard to climate and development of parts of the global south. So I think there's an awful lot that is daunting here. And I am glad the young people are turning out, and I am glad as I look at the issues that drive them that they're feeling that enthusiasm. I am a little bit critical of my kindred spirits from the what I'll call Rust Belt. My, I'm from Detroit. Because they say to me, and, and, and not in elliptical ways, we went through the decline of the auto industry, globalization, automation, and machine learning, and nobody helped us. We don't have transformational change in the United States where we can believe in it. Peter Goodman, the famous New York Times reporter who just wrote this book, Davos Man, once had an article on New Year's Eve 2017 about how Sweden welcomed the robots, which was in marked contrast to the Trumpian America. Why was that? Because those people had confidence that their children's education, their health care, their pension, and training to transform their professional skills would all be forthcoming as their nation sought to, which you might call, rise to the challenge and take advantage of the opportunity. And I don't know a lot of people that have that kind of faith in the collective dynamic of our country I, I in think, light of recent experience. Yeah, no, I would absolutely agree. Let me, let me just uh, make a few comments there. One, it's clear that you... Uh, have already shifted into what I said is the underlying um, unease, the underlying question of how how is this going to change? Um, but let me just say a couple of things. One, you point out uh, that the the fanning of of, of uh, competition uh, with China and and Putin's um, obvious fanning of competition with Russia um, is an attempt to distract. I will add, actually, that on the right, um, Greg Grandin uh, ha has a book within the last couple of years called The End of the Myth. I don't know if you know it. It's, it's from the, 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 the American myth used to be the frontier, 
And now you've got a bunch of those people that you would have thought would have been, uh, you know, uh, uh, enthusiastic about the frontier. Now they're more interested in the border wall. And Mm -hmm. so for them, immigration is another enemy like China or Russia and, and is used for the same purposes to pull us together and to shrink our circle of concern right? What we need with the crises we face is an expanded circle of concern that includes other people, other nations, (laughs) other societies, the rest of nature. And in fact, as you point out, if fear uh, can, now fear can pull us tighter where our our circle of concern, which I think in America is also already small, um, where it's my company, my church, my community, and even down to my family. But as as uh, Robert Wright pointed out in his old, in his book from years ago about zero sum, in war people actually expand their circle of concern. It it stops at the enemy, but it now includes the whole nation. So there is some sense that I think the young people see the climate crisis, see the pandemic, see inequality, see police brutality as something which actually is unifying to them because it is such a common enemy. And and I have friends who work in the realm of film and in the arts who do things like make docudramas about law enforcement. And when I have meals with them or cocktails with them or what have you, what they're telling me is the consciousness among young law enforcement officials that they're being asked to create stability and defend an unjust system Mm. is creating tremendous anxiety and mental illness among those in law enforcement. That they feel the dilemma in other words, yeah. stability is a good thing when you have a good system to protect. Stability fortifying a corrupt or bad system is not something you want to go to St. Peter's Gate or the equivalent and ask for admission to heaven for having enforced. Right, or just that moment as you lay your head on the pillow at night as to who, right. who am I, what did I do today? That's right. What's your vocation? What's your purpose in life? Those are questions that, you know, echo within our spirits through our entire life. Yeah. And these people who thought they were doing something collective for society, they're not out getting rich. That's right. And they're doing this, and all of a sudden, right before their eyes is an incoherent system. And they're at, they're being asked to enforce the boundaries of that incoherence. And I'm not I'm not talking about particularly black and white issues or any of the other things that people on the right sometimes Mm -hmm. get upset about. I'm saying all kinds of people do not like, for instance, that the Detroit school system was devastated because many of the teachers who were being evaluated under these new systems based on how two kids did on tests after They privatized all the prisons in Michigan. What happened was a lot of the fathers got put in jail and the prisons made a lot of money. And in the disrupted families, the children had emotional problems and their test scores went down. And then the teachers were blamed for that. 
And then the teachers left and went to other states. Oh, my God. What a, you know, you just see this, the ripple effects step by step by step. Yeah. And yeah. of course, well, you're, you're the home state of Betsy DeVos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's ironic that she was the education secretary, but uh, so be it. Yeah. She was she was in the cabinet because she and her family had been big supporters of Donald Trump in yep. the key swing state. Yep. But uh, but it's it's haunting to me to see things in this vibrant, dynamic, transformative economy that we've all lived through. That how would I say isn't prioritizing things like the invigoration of community colleges, and I I just think. You got to go, do you, it's, do you use an automotive tool? You got to be able to go get a tune-up and change your tires when the conditions change. Yeah. And that those platforms were allowed to erode. At the same time, by the way, many of my Michigan friends say to me, well, Rob, you went and made money in the hedge fund industry and you've been in the East Coast and your kids are all doing great and everything. And we just got kind of, left out behind the door and they say they can't afford it because they let all the winners from silicon valley and wall street keep their money offshore and what used to be tax evasion put you in jail is now tax avoidance and that's legal and then they all give sermons about how we got to have budgetary discipline but it's related to social security payments and education budgets not taking on the pharma industry or the military industrial complex or the taxes paid by the wealthy. Absolutely. And so for instance, it's, I'm going a little negative because I want to come back with a positive example. I've watched Josh Shapiro, who David Schroeder just wrote a wonderful piece about, I think it was in Rolling Stone magazine. He's a guy who has stepped into power meaning taken on power, not just as a candidate, but in appointed positions, and he just won as the governor of Pennsylvania. And a lot of times I think Democratic candidates with all their good intentions and everything in this money politics world are way too timid. And they don't inspire the trust of the body politic. And maybe these young people in their turnout are going to reinvigorate that currency called votes relative to the currency called money yes and inject some courage into the next generation of progressive politicians yeah yeah from from, from your from your mouth to god's ears this is free forum a world that just might work i'm terence mcnally speaking about the election and the underlying state of the nation uh, from which that election uh, arises and what we face moving forward with Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more about his work and uh, the podcast and the Institute at in INET Economics, I-N-E-T, Institute for New Economic Thinking, I-N-E-T Economics, all one word, INETEconomics.org. And as you can tell from this conversation, um, Rob is not just thinking uh, about economics. Um, the, the, the reason that I seek him out after elections is because uh, is because I, I feel like we both are looking at the the whole span of 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 what's needed, what's happening, what what what's 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 happening going forward. Let me just um, say that let, let's 
I want to throw in a few pieces of good news um, before we shift again down to that underlying question of how is this going to change? In other words, what we've both been saying, and you did point out Josh Shapiro, and we can point out, you know, there are more and and so on, but that um, that sh- turning this ship around, turning the, the, the goal from raising money 70% of the time uh, and then having your the money that you raised in that 70% of time overwhelmed by dark money that's anonymous and spent and, and if people if and if people don't know this dark money uh the pack money um cannot closely coordinate with a candidate's campaign so when when you see numbers that say and this is a bit of a tangent but 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 let me do this that the, when you see numbers that say that the democrat raised the same money as the republican for this particular office that's really just a drop in the bucket what really counts in terms of how much is being spent in that campaign is the money that these uh, non-official, non-campaign uh, funding funds. And that since you cannot coordinate with the campaign, with the candidate's campaign, and since you cannot in those ads that you see um, say, vote for uh, Herschel Walker, you have to go negative. All that money that is uh, being used and cannot uh, be positive has to be negative by law. So what we have seen since Citizen United and the, the, the amount of money, I don't have the figures right in front of me, I had them before, but the amount of money this time was about, a, this was about a billion dollars in dark money for this election. Um, that money is only, can, is only and purposefully spent on negative campaigning and negative campaigning breeds cynicism, it breeds distrust, um, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, one of the things that, that I, I, I've uh, looked at over the last year or so is the countries that are defined as the happiest, it's usually the Scandinavian countries, it's Finland, it's, it's um, Norway, and so on. Now, Sweden, as we know, just elected a sort of right-wing government, but, but, but those countries... What, what they have found is that, quote, happiness seems to correlate very much with trust. And in America, as we can see, trust is, is rare. Trust is endangered. And trust is actively um, by, by both sides, I would guess, but I think really by the right and by this dark money, trust is purposefully undermined. And when a country, when, when a people don't trust each other, and they sort of come out, they wake up in the morning in a state of distrust, the kind of group effort that it takes to make really big things happen and solve big problems is is beyond hard to come by. Yeah, I'm, I'm always reminded, because uh, at a formative time in, in my earlier life, somebody gave me a book by a man named Gerald Jampolsky. And it was called Love is Letting Go of Fear. Mm. And you could substitute the word trust for love. Yeah. But the idea is when fear is fomented, disintegration of collaborative possibilities are foregone. And 
that's, that's exactly it, isn't it? True, it's true in the body politic. It's true in interpersonal relationships. And when we, as movies like uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix have illustrated, we've allowed our platforms and our technology and these 527 super PACs and their anonymity to foment despair and distrust. And there are, there are lots, of, I, I watched a film last week called Soul Heal, S-O-U-L-H-E-A-L. Hmm. Not heal your foot, but the heal, healing. Mm-hmm. Healing your soul. And it, was, and it was opening, was showing all of these vivid portraits of really hostile, dysfunctional things happening across the United States. And it talked about the history of the role of men. Mm. This uh, famous Jungian psychologist, James Hollis, was the underpinning. Uh, And he talked about how when you're supposed to be the leader of your family or protect your family, I think things are a lot more symmetric now. But in that tradition, a man's dignity has to do with these things. It's actually men... The women aren't as surprised by the dysfunction because they've always felt subordinated. And But the men who felt confident, like mm. they had their world under control, are disintegrating now. And their fear is exacerbating the violence and the hostility and the um, dying of drug overdoses and all kinds of things. And it's only about a 28-minute long movie, but it's really it really haunted me mm-hmm. because like you were saying how are we going to break out of this spiral how are we going to get back into that positive place and i i think that's true within the nation i don't know how the united states and china can succeed in the climate without cooperating oh and, absolutely yeah pandemics uh all those all the, most of the crises that i mentioned at the top climate uh, ec- uh technological disruption uh pandemics public health um all of that uh and the relationship with nature beyond climate right in other words it's not you know we we talk about climate now more than we talk about pollution but in terms sure. of what one is killing us today the other one will kill us later um but all mm-hmm. of those things demand cohesion and yet America, at least, and, uh, you know, it, it descends toward tribalism. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, and what, what I'm going to say to you, just this is related to my work, the false consciousness of economics, which is always embedded in this notion that your individual freedom is what's at risk if you govern the economy, is way understating what you might call the side effects or economists we call externalities. Mm-hmm. Meaning the side effects of false fossil fuel burning is not something that the oil companies are paying for the cleanup or in other things, you know, thermal pollution on the Detroit River, how Lake Erie was devastated. The side effects are now huge in our societies. And we are acting as though that we don't have a political economy. We have these two separate realms, the economy and the governance. And governance is so distrusted, we got to keep them out of messing up the economy. But when the economy isn't acknowledging its side effects, we got to figure out how to regain trust in government to get back in 
to the arena and create the balance we need in the economy for the well-being of humankind. You know, I speak to uh, some of my friends who lean a little more to uh, tech optimism. Uh, and, you know, there's that continuum sort of from tech optimism to that crazy Peter, Peter Thiel libertarianism or those folks who are building those silos you mentioned. Um, but but the, the notion that, you know, God, government just hasn't cut it. And we should think we should turn our attention to what can be done outside of and without government and 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 find you know ways of structuring our companies and and so on that's going to solve the problems and i just think I, I i i often say to myself i wish i didn't think politics was as influential as it is but but i keep coming back to the fact that it is let me let mm -hmm. me let's talk about the economy for a second since i've got an economist on the line here um for, first thing is Numerous studies and their own earnings reports indicate that corporations have taken advantage of the fairly unavoidable inflation caused by the pandemic, the dislocations of the supply chain, the war on Ukraine and its effects on energy and food supplies, taken advantage by price gouging, amassing record profits while families suffer. How are they getting away with this and why isn't there sort of a, a more demand and more recognition, more demand? but more mechanism to sort of stop this sort of thing. I, I, yeah, there, there, there are many dilemmas that you just raised, one of which is why does the central bank, oh. which, which you might call fortified the wealthy for the time since 2009, with very low interest rates and building huge stock market gains for a very narrow segment of the population, just because they're the ones that had all the money. How can they now say we got to crush the economy to stop inflation? When this is not like the, one of the gentlemen that I was influenced by greatly in my early career, partly because he liked to go fishing, was <laughs> Paul Volcker. Uh -huh. And Paul Volcker and the late Peter Kennan and myself became friendly. And then I went to the Fed when I was writing my dissertation, and then he got me a job with Pete Domenici on the Senate Budget Committee. And I came back at the Senate Banking Committee and ran the Humphrey Hawkins hearings and the confirmation hearings on the Fed. But working with Paul, and he worked with me at the onset of INET and everything else, he used to talk about, at the time, he felt funny because he had to stomp out inflation, but a lot of it came from OPEC's cartel. Of course. It didn't. But at that time, wages share of GDP was much higher than it is now. Mm -hmm. And capital share was smaller. So, but there was still the dilemma of what when we call a supply shock. In that case, it was the price of oil. Mm -hmm. What do you do to stabilize the economy? And let, let me jump and, in for one quick second, Rob, and say that as my understanding, obviously you've just you've just pointed out the part of your resume that is really closely tied to the Fed. But in my understanding, the Fed has two jobs or or a balancing act to hold down inflation and hold down unemployment. It's supposed to do both, yeah. and yet it seems that they always move in the direction of uh, trying to tamp inflation. And and Powell has been very open about. You know, there, there'll be pain, 
and that pain will be felt by families, not by not by the rich or the big corporations. I just wanted to remind people is that their their we, mandate is not just about inflation. Their mandate is equal about both. Yes. Well, there's an old uh, saying that I learned from the late William Grider. His uh -huh. book, Secrets of the Temple. Yeah. Interviewed him on that book. book many years ago. Yeah. And and I worked with Bill on that book with permission from Paul Volcker, and he did interviews, and he he was very admiring of that book. In his last years of his life, uh, Paul talked to me about wanting Phil Ryder to know, <laughs> as he was aware he was not going to be alive much longer, that that was one of the best darn books ever written on central banking, maybe the best book. Mm -hmm. And what Ryder used to say, without dogmatism, he'd say, Rob, what is the, when they say an independent Fed, independent from whom? <laughs> And, and just that question is like echoes in my mind because when they kept interest rates really low for a really long time and lots of wealthy people were getting wealthy or fast, there wasn't an outcry. And now, even though wages are down and lots of people were disrupted by the pandemic, we're not really enforcing antitrust. Profits are very high in many of these sectors and wages are not a large compression on profits and yet we're going to we're going to knock down the economy why don't we have a fed advocating for widespread antitrust enforcement yes i don't understand maybe they say that's not their domain you know it's interest rates and monetary policy you know money supply growth those are their tools that falls on the responsibility of other segments of government. I can understand that what I'll call division of labor and the way our institutions are constructed. But the fact is, the Fed isn't in a place, given this set of shocks, to essentially, like you said, see prices going up and output going down because of the supply shock. And then what they say is, we got to make output go down even more so the prices don't go up. And where Volcker would have come out on this is if when prices go up, the other sectors of the economy and the labor market can then bargain, you can create a wage price spiral, and then you do have a dynamic problem. But I'm not seeing the bargaining power of labor to create a spiral. In other words, the supply shock hits everything, prices do go up, and then it propagates through. But are all kinds of people going to be able to mark up what they charge because <laughs> no, they're and, paying more? And for, people, for... people who look and know that there were wage gains over the last year, coming back from the pandemic, there have been wage gains. Um, it was, uh, you know, at the low end of the service sector, obviously you see signs outside uh, restaurants promoting uh -huh. their, their hourly wage because they're having yeah. trouble finding people. And people, yeah. people then go, oh, so it's people, it's wages that are causing inflation. And yet with all the wage gains that have happened, they, they are trailing inflation. So they have, let me, let me put a, a dark notion on the table for your listeners. Maybe those people are asking for more wages because given our health calamity, mm -hmm. they view that as a risk premium for going to work in person. Yeah. In other words, the pandemic isn't gone. There are variants of the, they may not be as severe, 
but who knows what mutations are coming. But I know a lot of people who are very nervous even now about going back into the office every day. And obviously people in the entertainment and health and um, hospitality businesses have to be on site. Yeah, They're serving other people in proximity. So if those wages go up, is that, a, is that a justified risk premium because we didn't take care of the pandemic? Well, I think the thing the that we should have. The thing that argues for what you're saying is the people who haven't returned, who haven't been willing to return to those jobs. Right. At the, at the, right. At the slightly advanced wages that you see advertised, that still wasn't enough to, to, right. to, to put themselves at risk and put their families at risk. Let me, right. we've got about five minutes left. The big question, which, is, which haunts me, is I feel like we make a step forward and then a step back or two, and then a step forward and then a step back or two. We fight the same battles over and over again. We get no closer to marshalling the true creative energies of this country to solving big problems than, I mean, it feels like we've been running in place uh, for, for so many years and, and in lots of ways getting worse because, and I'll try to make this little note quickly, the, if you are the party that has no policies to deal with the crises that people know are out there, then you have to do what I mentioned in the introduction. You have to run on grievance, anger, fear, rage, and, and, and just keep driving people further. What is going to turn this around? Do we have to wait for youth to take over? Well, that's we we have to have a combination of youth and courage. Is my sense courage? I mean, good. I I sometimes tease political representatives that I know by by feeding them some of the speeches that Franklin Roosevelt made between 1932 and 1938, because this is a guy who just stood into it and he did make some enemies in powerful sectors in the economy but he did facilitate transformation at a desperate time and he was revealed even to this day and so we need courage and we need participation despondency you know somebody said to me a couple of months ago, the challenge now is how to fill the void. All of the negative energy is deepening the void, deepening the despair, making us more vulnerable to authoritarian alternatives. That's right. There are we, feedback loops. Feedback loops right. that just feed on each other. So we got to fill the void. We got to decide what to do. But we also need what I'll call uh, the embodiment of courage on the stage and there are a handful of people my friend ned lamont who's the governor of of connecticut i've been up and seen a couple of his events this year one with kamala harris and my wife i've seen him across the spectrum of things he lives in greenwich connecticut a lot of the people there are republican he has a vision he's kind of got a bobby kennedy kind of energy of what's the right thing to do I mentioned Shapiro. There are people I I am concerned now about her future, but I think Lisa Murkowski, who whose mm. father I worked with some when I worked in the Senate, mm. is a person who's exhibits a lot of integrity. Sherrod Brown. 
Sherrod Brown is a good man. I've known him for years, and uh, and you know, how would I say he's facile. He he's he's not viewed as a ranter, but he's always in the thick of things <laughs> on the constructive side. And I think that that you know how would I say uh, I don't. I you heard me talking critically about the Federal Reserve, but I think that the Federal Reserve at times is a relatively sober and constructive place. It's not just a little beast that's captured by the power. But, and and some of the constellation of new governors, Lisa Cook, who's a friend of mine and others, I think are, how do I say, going to create a better sense of balance in this next period. So courage. But, but courage, making a difference in a dysfunctional politics requires courage, but it is the basis for profound satisfaction with the contribution you made in your time on earth. Yes, absolutely. Going back to that, how do you feel when you lay your head on the pillow at night? Right. Yeah. Oh, right. And, 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 and the idea that you're going to sit in a position of power with all that ceremony and everything and do nothing while Rome burns, metaphorically, that's no way to live. No. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen some people who are constructive in the realm of business. I've seen some people who are former financial officials or, or from the private sector who have a very strong, very constructive uh, mindset. Gentlemen, you and I both know uh, Guy Saperstein has been quite vigorous for many, many years. And uh, Steve Silberstein has worked a lot on how the pensions were managed and how they disciplined the companies on behalf of the pensioners. You know, a lot of small pensioners aggregated together is a big fund, but, it, but you're developing something to support the collective good when yeah. you take on the big companies yeah. on behalf of that broad base. Yeah. And Steve Silverstein's an excellent example of that and the uh, roles he's played in California governance. Yeah. So I think, I think there are examples out there and it's difficult because we can all kind of get washed out to sea in the despondency. I but guess I, I'll throw one other thing and then I've got to, we got to bring it to a close. And that is <laughs> the thing that uh, I, heard, I may have mentioned this to you back in 2017. After Trump won, I went to a nonprofit uh, leaders uh, uh, get together about reflecting on the election. And towards the end of uh, that meeting, a woman got up and she said, I remember 1994 when Prop 287, I believe it was, had passed in California, later overturned by the courts. But it was worse on immigrants than anything Trump ever came up with. You you remember this. Yeah. And yeah. and and the California was ahead of the country in anti-immigrant policy. It was ahead of the country in lots of negative things and she said I look at where we are today. California is about to become the fourth largest economy in the world. It's about to pass Germany. Um and yet if the rest of the country was following the aims and, 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 and pathways that California is, this conversation would be an entirely different one. So there's something 
that whatever happened here, there's no reason that that same thing can't happen elsewhere. And, 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 and that possibility that California was just earlier to go dark and earlier to go light um, may, be, may be something that we can, we can hope for. Yeah, I'll, I'll cite uh, a film that influenced me. My friend uh, who I worked with, he used to work with Jack Kemp when I worked with Pete Domenici, David Smick made a documentary where Alice Rivlin and uh, Leon Panetta and all kinds of people participated. It was called Stars and Strife. I think it's on the Amazon uh, Prime vehicle. But Stars and Strife had an awful lot of people at the end of their career looking at the deterioration of the United States. But what you might call not acquiescing to despair, but trying to envision why it would be transitory and what to do to make sure it was transitory. And uh, I, I think that's what you might call the playbook or the recipe for the next phase. I think the young people can participate as architects of their future world I think we have to discard some of what I call the religious parables. I talked about free market economics, but, mm, mm, mm. and we got we got to scrutinize what a politician is being pressured to represent, and talk about restructuring how they're rewarded, if you will, mm -hmm. for their collective participation. Mm -hmm. And politics and economics are not separable. Right. right. They are woven in. What we call political economy is very important. Okay, we gotta we gotta bring it to a close, Rob. Um and uh obviously this conversation, this search for the way forward, this search for the pathway out of where we find ourselves uh is ongoing. Um, again, Rob is president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, host of the podcast Economics and Beyond. And you can learn more at ineteconomics.org. I-N-E-T, economics, all one word, I-N-E-T, economics.org. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or a world that just might work dot com. That's one law it's one long word, a world that just might work dot com. They're the same website. If you want to get my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about and links to probably ten or fifteen articles to flesh out that conversation, um, email me at T E McNally, T E M C N A L L Y at Mac dot com, M A C dot com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum podcast on Apple Podcasts and at other podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site, and you can sign up for that email at my site um, or at most podcast sites. You know, Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, Rob Johnson. Keep up your good work. Thank you, and... I want people to understand that courage means stepping away from things that trigger your fear. 
And Terrence, you're a wonderful example of someone who has reached that contributing place through your innovation and your courage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.